Amen. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Amy. I'd like to invite those who'd like to participate in junior church to be exiting at this time through grade four. So if, if you have a little one up through grade four, you can take them downstairs right now. Uh, teachers will be down there to meet them in the classrooms. It'd be a great opportunity for you to uh, have them there. But if you want to keep them with you, that's certainly okay. We enjoy having children with us. I like that cartoon. It just struck my funny bone for some reason. Just... Uh, what if, before the first conversation occurred, what the normal reaction to snakes would have been occurred in the garden and maybe changed the course of everything? I'd like you to turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're getting a little later start today, so hopefully we'll be able to cover what we want to cover. But I think the time spent earlier was good. I love that we do this at Berean, that we, we take time to do what we need to do and what we should do. And it's not uh, so structured that the Holy Spirit can't have... Uh, time and a word to get in. And so to, to conserve our time together, look at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're in a continued study. If you're new today, uh, we're in a continued study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We've titled the study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church. If you've read through First and Second Corinthians, you know why it's titled that way, because it does deal with numerous issues that come up in the church. And Paul, as he uh, was fulfilling the Holy Spirit's desire for the church to have unity, for the church to be healthy, is dealing with these things one by one. Not every church has every issue. Some uh, of these instructions can be prophylactic, some can be curative, uh, but uh, either way, it's an opportunity for us to see the mind of the Lord as it deals with the church and some of the issues that come up. Look at verse 19, if you would. This is a new section for us, so we'll read through it uh, to, through verse 27 and then come back and make some comments. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might may by all means save some. Verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 26, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's stop right there. Pastor Bob Stewart driving down a Texas highway in a church van, returning from a church-related function on a rather lazy summer night, listening to the Rangers play on the radio. Two young guys pull up in a car beside him as he's going down I-35, trying to wave at him and smile, and they're laughing and everything, and so he waves. He just thinks, well, there are probably a couple of Christians see the church name. They know who we are, and so he just smiles and keeps on listening to the game. He doesn't think about it, and all of a sudden, maybe four or five minutes later, the car pulls up beside him again, and, and the window's down. The guy's hanging out of the window, and so the pastor rolls down his window, and he says, um, the question on the highway at 65 is, where do you find the sinner's prayer? He shouts out as, as loud as he can. And so, uh, true story, the pastor motions the guy to pull over, say pull off beside the highway. And what ends up being the scenario was, 
um, the guy who was the passenger is a brand new believer, and the guy who's the driver isn't a believer, and the guy who was a passenger was witnessing to the guy who was the driver, but the, the brand new believer uh, thought there was a sinner's prayer somewhere, and he didn't know where it was, so he figured if he saw a church van and, and you know, somebody driving it, they would probably know. And so he waves him down, and so right there on the side of the road, it, the pastor, of course, leads him on another road, the Romans road, and he actually leads the driver to faith. And so it's just, again, an opportunity that as, you, as the Lord provides. It's not always, you know, it's cold turkey, it's not always sharing the gospel for the first time. Sometimes it's just like happened maybe uh, six months ago here at Berea, after a Sunday night service, and uh, a guy comes in the back door, Sunday service is all over, I'm back in my office just putting some things away. All of a sudden, somebody comes and gets me and says, hey, somebody wants to talk to you. And I walk out, and there's this guy, he goes, he goes uh, how, do you, how do you accept Jesus as your Savior? Right? Somebody's been telling me how to accept Jesus as your Savior, and I don't know how to do it. Can you tell me? And I'm like, uh, sure. I mean, it's not that complicated, is it? And, and sometimes people just come up, and they're ready, and are you ready? That's the question. Another story, Bill Bright wrote in his book, The Greatest Lesson I've Ever Learned. Bill says this, quote, Many Christians can take comfort in the fact that the founder of evangelism explosion had not always been a soul winner. By his own admission, uh, D. James Kennedy, who is with the Lord now, said he did not attempt to reach people for Christ because they ha he had a serious back problem. This is his own words. He said the ailment involved a wide yellow stripe that ran up his spine and connected to his jawbone. That was his back problem. He was a shy minister, trouble turning any conversation towards Christ. This is D. James Kennedy, of course. Uh, the catalyst to change all of that is when he was invited to be the guest evangelist at a revival meeting. Now, that was pretty interesting for him, of course, because he wasn't an evangelist and he didn't even share his faith on a regular basis. So, D. James Kennedy shows up there, according to Bill Bright, and they're making some visits before the meetings begin, and, and uh, it's obvious to the, the minister who's hosting the evangelistic outreach that, Bill, that uh, D. James Kennedy has no idea what he's doing and has no, uh, has no motivation whatsoever to share the gospel. So, the... the the pastor continues to, to witness and leads about 50 people to Christ. Well, Kennedy goes home, and he is completely humiliated, and he's completely discouraged. And he just thinks he's a complete loser. And so he just really dealt with the Lord at that point and realized, you know, this has to do with me. And so at that point, he began very intentional uh, to seek out how he would uh, change his own dynamic. And, of course, that dynamic took this pastor of 17 people, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and turned it into the outreach that we know that it has been over the years. So... Anyway, I guess the point that Bright is making is that, uh, you know, if God can use an evangelistic coward to launch a worldwide emphasis on evangelism, he can use you and me. And it really has to do with where our mindset is as we think about the gospel. Now, last week we finished verse 18 of chapter 9, uh, which deals with Paul illustrating the instruction that Paul gave to the Corinthians in chapter 8. And that instruction he gave in chapter 8 uh, was freedom to limit your freedom, the freedom you may have in Christ, in love so that other people can be benefited and won't be uh, damaged by what you allow. And so Paul wanted to illustrate that and uh, things that really they could make a case for and did make a case for that were their rights to do inside their freedom in Christ. Things that weren't prohibited by the Lord, they were gray area things. And yet Paul demonstrates to them uh, first by giving them the instruction and then giving them the illustration, uh, the imperative of considering how their actions might affect those around them and then joyfully, and that was that last point we made, it was a joy for Paul to do it, joyfully limit their freedom if it could result in the evangelization of people or the benefit of the gospel or laying a foundation for the gospel. So then Paul takes the first 18 verses in chapter 9 and he illustrates that whole point and he shows that by showing how he himself had limited his freedom among the church and, and he limited that freedom, that freedom to, provide, to have uh, his own uh, living expenses provided for the church while he was there. He had willingly said, look, I'm going to not receive it. 
and I'm going to go ahead and minister among you. And that was his freedom, and he made that case very well, and it, it became a real great foundation for us in doctrine as, as far as what the church's responsibilities are and all of that. But the point was that Paul says, listen, I limited my freedom among you. You may not even have known this. This is what I did. It's something I brought to the table here. It's not something the Lord told me to do. And I would limit my freedom so that the gospel could go forward, and I wouldn't make any, any uh, roadblock for the gospel. Now, I want to look at verses 19 to 27 this morning, get as far as we can get. And we're going to see Paul illustrate again. And this is the second illustration Paul's going to use. And then he's going to move into chapter 10. He's going to use Israel. But right here, he's going to use himself again. And again, the imperative of limiting your freedom out of love, specifically to avoid creating a hindrance. And that was verse 12 of chapter 9 to the gospel. But really, actually the opposite here, limiting your freedom to share the gospel. And as you read, uh, that, you read that passage with me just a few moments ago, we saw uh, phrases like this. And, and this is a... I think that you picked up on this, it just kind of repeated over and over again. It was this. So in verse 19, we saw, so that I may win more. In verse 20, we saw, so that I might win Jews. In verse, another, again in verse 20, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, so that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, so that I might win the weak. Uh, by all means, save some. Verse 22, uh, all things for the sake of the gospel. Verse 23. And so, this was an incessant focus for Paul, a very important uh, principle for Paul that he continually uh, focused on. So he wanted to see people coming to Christ. And these, the passage here is an illustration of the freedom to limit your freedom. But the focus of the passage is providing an avenue for the gospel. And it, it's so important. I, I can't even, I can hardly wait to get to the first principle that Paul makes so clear. It's so astounding. I want you to just to think about it as we get there. We'll pause there for a second because I want you to, to let that absorb, come, come in and just absorb that. But of course, as you think about Paul, He's effective in a number of things. He's effective in planting churches. He's effective in discipling people. Timothy and Titus, of course, come to mind as we think about Paul's sons in the faith. Uh, he is effective in teaching doctrine, and we understand many of the things we need to know about Christianity from Paul. But beyond all of that, Paul, for Paul, really, evangelism is the most important thing. And according to this section, he's willing to give up any right he had to create opportunity for that. Now let's look at verse 19, and then I'd like to lay an important groundwork here as is our habit as we start a new section. An introduction, if you will, which I think will yield our first important principle from Paul's personal illustration. Look at verse 19. It says this, For though I am free from all men, I am free, eleutheros, Greek adjective. It's used 23 times in the New Testament, 18 times translated free. Really, it's unrestrained, uh, not bound by an obligation. We've seen this. We understand that freedom. We've talked about it before as we entered verse 9, and uh, chapter 9, as, as we started chapter 8. And it appears that Paul's referring back, actually, to his first statement in the beginning of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Of course, am I free? Yes, I am. I'm an apostle. Yes. Have I not seen Jesus? Yes, I have. Are you not my work in the Lord? Yes, you are. Yes, rhetorical every time. Uh, but he's just restating the obvious. He says, listen, I'm not just free, I'm free of all men, Paul says. Uh, basically, it's just uh, you know, very, very important. There's no yoke on me. Uh, I, I understand my freedom. I'm free from any man, here it is, I'm free from any man's expectation of some preconceived idea of how they want me to respond. I'm free of all that, Paul says. I understand that. Uh, this is the problem Corinthians are having, of course. They, they're just free from everybody. They don't care what uh, the ramifications of their choices are. They're just free, okay? Uh, Paul says, listen, I understand freedom, okay? For though I'm free of all men, I, I am free from anybody's expectation of some preconceived idea of how they want me to respond. Now look at the next part. I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. 
emotan endeluso. I've made myself, reflexive pronoun emotan, uh, myself, coupled with the Greek verb uh, slave endeluso, um, which is really aristactic vindictive. And, and I, want, I want you to grab this. This is super important. And it really, as I just was thinking about this this week, I just kind of sat there for a minute. Here's, here's the issue, okay? As you read this, I've made myself a slave to all. It simply means this, that Paul, now catch this, okay? This is very, very proactive, very bringing your will in subjection to Christ. Paul, in time in the past, it's that aorist uh, tense there, okay? In a time in the past, has placed himself in an active bond-slave relationship to the unredeemed. Paul decided at a time in the past that for his life, whatever it was he could give up, whatever it was he needed to put aside, whatever freedom he may have that he could exercise, was subservient to his relationship to the unredeemed. And that's astounding, isn't it? Yeah, it seems like it's a long ways from where modern Christianity is today. Because we're, many times, and I'm not being accusative, I'm just saying it, many times we're so wrapped up in the world and in material things and, and in entertainment and, and whatever else. So we have, th- that thought hasn't even entered our mind, perhaps, at the point, wherever you are in your salvation, however many years it's been. Have you ever thought, and this is as I th- sat in my office Tuesday, I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking it. In the time past, Paul determined that his life was going to be subservient. He was going to place himself in a bond-servant relationship with the unredeemed. So whatever it took for the unredeemed to come to faith, that's what it was going to take, and that was okay. That was what he brought to the table. Okay? That's his freedom to limit his freedom for the cause of Christ. Okay? Now, just some background on this opening statement, because I think it helps to kind of fill in the gas for us in Romans 1.1. Paul introduces himself in Romans 1.1 as a bond-slave of Christ. Remember that when we went through our Roman study, we saw... Uh, it's a, a noun form of the word doulos. And so you have the slave-master relationship in view here in Romans 1.1. And uh, perhaps, you know, to pay off a debt, maybe because of hard time, you have a slave-master relationship. And, and uh, we have some background, but uh, uh, it's found in Exodus 21, chapter 5, uh, tw- chapter, tw- uh, chapter 21, verse 5. And it says this. And this is the background for Paul. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ, and then he's a bond-slave of Christ. And then here is he says, I'm a bond-slave of the, of the lost. Here's the background for bond-slave. He says this, um, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I'll not go out as a free man. So there's a slave-master slave relationship. There's a slave-master relationship that's going on here uh, in the Old Testament. There's some go- rules that are going to govern it. And uh, some, perhaps that slave is there because uh, they, they came into hard times. Perhaps it came there because they have debt, and so they have to work it off perhaps uh, whatever that may be, there's a slave-master relationship going on here between two people, and the slave has been there in this relationship for some time, and so it comes time that he's paid off his debt or that he's, he's worked off his uh, whatever the relationship was that caused him to get into the slave relationship. And so he comes out and he says this. It's time for him to go, and he says this. He says, the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children. I'll not go out as a free man. So we're in this time where he can go out, he can start living on his own, you know, create his own environment around him, whatever, but the servant doesn't want to leave. And it would happen, and in the slave-master relationship, as it was supposed to be in the Old Testament, that was a loving relationship as an environment to help somebody else. It was a, a place where somebody could be uh, nursed along, maybe help them get back on their feet, all of that. And so, but the servant doesn't want to leave. He, he wants to stay in the house. So what's happening is, is that there's a change of heart. Before, when he was in the relationship, when he first came into it, he had to be there. So he had to serve, he had to pay the debt, he had to uh, in or, serve in order to be paid, if it were, if, if that's what he was doing, he was... Uh, just 
getting it, receiving income or whatever, or he had to serve out of fear or out of punishment or whatever. But now, see, now he wants, he wants to serve. He, he doesn't care if he's paid. He's, he just decided, I don't want to leave this house. Uh, I'm not afraid of punishment. You know, before it could have been if he didn't serve, he, he perhaps would be in trouble. Now he doesn't care. He wants to stay. He wants to serve. He doesn't ever want to go free. So he became known as a bond slave. That was the whole idea in Exodus. If, if that relationship came about, if the relationship there in the slave-master relationship was something the person wanted to stay under, then they would become known as a bond slave. And then verse 6 says, Then his master shall bring him to God. That's, in other words, go to the tabernacle or the temple. That's where the priests are. He's going to bring him to the Lord. And, and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And so that seems a little painful, but it, it is... Uh, uh, the way that it was marked that the person would stay in that slave-master relationship as a bond slave. So if you had a change of heart, you wanted to stay as a servant uh, to this master, you, you, you'd been serving, you, you made it public, you were marked publicly, so everybody knew that's what your decision was. You were marked in an obvious place, in the center, really, of the community, and, and everyone had known what you determined, and your mind was made up, and, and you made it permanent, and you were permanently marked to indicate your heart desire. And so Romans 1 Paul comes in and says, I'm a bond slave of Christ, so we understand the background of Paul's statement. Paul declares, you know, I'm going to serve out of love. I'm never going to leave. Um, this is what I want to do. Paul thought he was in God's service before redemption, before that Damascus road. You know, he did things uh, he did out of fear. He did things that he did for the Lord to earn a high standing with God. He did things uh, he served with zeal, which resulted in his own pride of accomplishment. He did things uh, for all different reasons. But after redemption, Paul understood his relationship to God was a bond slave relationship. And everything Paul did after that was motivated then by love. I want to stay in this relationship because I love the Lord. I want to stay in this relationship. And I'm not worried about being punished. And I'm not worried about being paid. And I don't care about all of that. I love the Lord. I want to stay there. And here's the thing that connects Paul's statement in Romans as a noun declaring his identity to a statement in 1 Corinthians 9.19 that he's made himself a slave. Now, Jesus, as he was talking about himself in Matthew 10.24, he says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master, it is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. And then in Luke 19.10, Jesus says of himself, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. So you hear this mindset here, as Jesus says, listen, the slave's going to be like the master, that's how it should be, the, the, the uh, disciple like the teacher. And then Jesus says, listen, of me, he's talking about himself, I've come, he says, to seek and save that which was lost. So when Paul writes to the Philippian church, Philippians 2.6, and he says this about Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see this. The slave has got to become like his master, uh, the disciple like his teacher. Paul says, I'm going to be a bond, I'm a bond slave of the Lord. And so we see all this progression, as you can see this opening up for us, and understand where Paul is coming from, see. So in verse 5, he says, be like-minded or think the same way. Uh, let this mind be in you, he says, of, as was in Christ. So Paul says, listen, I'm a bond slave because Jesus made himself, what? A bond slave. And I'm not greater than my master. I want to be like my master. Okay? And my master came to seek and save that which was lost. And so that's what I'm going to do, too. You see, that's, I think that's, that's a little overwhelming, isn't it? And that's really about, that's really what discipleship is all about, isn't it? I mean, that... That's the crux of it. And we, we, we add a lot of stuff to it. But when it comes right down to it, Paul says, I'm a bond slave of Christ. And what was Christ about? He made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a bond slave, made in the likeness of men, 
found his appearance of a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, because he came to seek and save that which was lost. So it was just a natural progression for Paul. Listen, here I am, and I'm a bond slave of Christ. And so when he comes to this passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, it's not surprising for us to hear, although perhaps surprising as we think about our own life in comparison to that, and our own motivation to share, perhaps like a D. James Kennedy, no motivation at all, when really what it's supposed to look like is, I'm a bond slave of the lost. See, And of course, it's not just for Paul. I mean, in Colossians 4.12, Paul mentions Epaphras. Remember, remember this guy, this is a layperson. This is what he says about him. Epaphras, who's one of your number, he says. So he, he worships there in Colossae. A bond slave of Christ. So he identifies him right away. He's a bond slave of Christ. So obviously his life patterned after what Christ came to do. Sends you his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras is a layman. He's one of their number. Paul points out that he's a bond slave. Peter admonishes everyone. First Peter 2.16, he says, act as free men. In other words, you're free uh, from the from dietary laws. You're free from all these things. These restrictions. But don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as what? It's everybody. I mean, it, we don't get to escape. It's not like two levels of Christianity. The one level that, I mean, we're not a bond slave, but we're a Christian. The other level that we are a bond slave and that we're really dedicated. Peter says, look, you're free. Use your freedom as bond slaves. So what's a bond slave do? Well, he serves out of love. He becomes like his master. What's the master do? Well, the master comes and seeks and saves the lost and humbles himself and becomes a bondservant and goes to cross, goes to the cross. And I think that's a great example for us. And I just think just in the opening statements, as we see Paul make the statement, there's so much in just that little phrase. Submission, respect, love of God, doing what he did. We're serving the living God, emulating Christ's behavior. Uh, we're witnessing the gospel, you know, making up your mind in advance to submit yourself as a slave to the lost. See, Using your freedom to submit yourself in whatever way it takes to see the lost come to faith. Now, we'll qualify that in a minute because Paul does. But just a very important first step. I think if we, need, if we understand that, we understand really the motivation for witnessing more than any other way, okay? Obviously, we have great commissions that, that came five different times, told us what we need to do. But this really, I think, is the mindset that brings us easily into the submission of the Great Commission. Now, Paul makes clear what the gospel is, the good news. And that's important because if you're going to be a bondsman, if you're going to witness, you've got to know what it is. And uh, Jim read this a couple of weeks ago. I loved it just because it's just so clear. What do I have to know? Well, here's what you have to know if you're going to be a witness. Now, I make uh, known to you, brethren, uh, that which I preach to you, which also you received and which you also stand, by which you were also saved, if you hold fast to the word we went, which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. What was it, Paul? What did we believe? Verse 34, I delivered to you of uh, first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Very simple, isn't it? That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. We make ourselves bond slaves. And we form ourselves in such a way that our freedom is limited to give out the gospel, and the gospel is that. What is it? Well, um, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Very simple, okay? That's the, that's the message you give out. You're a bond slave. You, you make that happen. Christ was the pattern for us. We see what that looks like. And so what seems to be obvious here then is, as Paul begins this section in context, giving the Corinthian church another example of his freedom to restrict his freedom, he says, look, I've been doing this my entire ministry, okay? I made this decision already in a time past, and it continues right on till now. I have made myself a bond slave. Now, but again, in his, in his example, we glean a very important principle for us, and here it is. 
He's really shedding some light on really an overarching mindset that must be in place as a gospel witness, which is this. We are free to be a servant to the gospel. That's what we are. We're free to be a servant to the gospel. Yes, you, you are free in Christ. Yes, you can make some decisions in those gray areas, whatever they may be. But overarching all of that, Paul says, you're free to be a servant of the gospel. Paul freed himself from everybody just that he might be everybody's servant. He wasn't restricted by anyone's expectations of him. He wasn't worried about whether someone thought he should do this certain thing or not do that certain thing. It didn't bother him at all. He understood freedom. He says, am I not free? I understand my freedom probably better than you, he says. He wasn't worried about whether someone thought he should do some certain thing or not do some certain thing. He understood his freedom in Christ completely. And most importantly, he understood his freedom as an opportunity to willingly submit himself to all he would witness to, whatever that would take. And then he's going to give us some examples. And it's not a new idea. In Luke chapter 22, and this is just a great illustration, of course. Um, they're walking along, and you know, Jesus is teaching them about uh, being a disciple and all this. And they're talking about how, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom and all that, back behind where Jesus can't really hear, they don't think. All right? So they get to the location. Verse 24, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. Jesus says, listen, it's the bond slave who's the greatest. It's not the one who is the benefactor. It's not the one who sits at the head of the table. It's the one who's serving. And Jesus said, look, I'm giving you that example. I'm serving. John 13, 12, again, when he washed their feet, taken his garments and reclined at the table. And again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and you're right, for I am. If then, the, if then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, I truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Once again, here it is. Jesus, listen, I'm your leader. I'm supposed to be your master. You call me master, and so it is. And what have I done? I took off my garments. I served you. I washed your feet. I've made myself as a servant to you. That's the greatest one, see? And so it's just all the way through Scripture. I think we just kind of missed the whole fo the forest for the trees there. In Romans 1.14, Paul's talking. He says, I'm under obligation both the Greek and to barbarian, both the wise and the foolish. Uh, Romans 15.1 and 2. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and just not just to please ourselves, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. It's just all the way through. You're making yourself subservient. The other person is more important. Uh, those who are lost are more important. Paul says, I'm bringing myself as a bond slave to all the lost. Paul says, I'm bringing myself in subservience to you. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to serve you. I'm the one who served you. I'm the one who washed your feet. Listen, the servant is not greater than the master. You want to be the greatest? Be the one who serves. And so, just this all the way through, this is the wonderful threads that wash through the scriptures here. I look back at verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. He's not just restricting his freedom to help those in the church in Corinth. He's restricting his freedom for the bigger picture. Here it is. He's going to do whatever is required and do without whatever is required to see the gospel be effective. First part of uh, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, listen, I'm, I'm willingly making myself free. So I don't have to receive any kind of uh, 
support from you. I'm going I'm to free myself up from that. I'm going to do that so I don't provide a hindrance to the gospel. I'm going to provide that so I don't damage someone. I'm going to provide that so I don't ruin someone. I'm, I'm going to do that so I don't hurt somebody's conscience. They were having some problems with all of it. So he just says, listen, I'm free to give it up, and I'm going to give it up. But even greater than that, see, even greater than that, Paul says, you know, I'm free from all men. I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more. Whatever is required, I'll do without whatever's required. I'll do whatever's required to see the gospel effective. Now, just as a footnote, commenting on something you probably noticed, Paul uses the word I 18 times in verses 19 through 27. As you read that, you see, you know, I a lot. And I think, I think perhaps that strikes us as a little weird because we're used to hearing modern politicians and professional athletes give interviews. And uh, that's just in our mind as we think about I because that's, Every, it's every other word. I did this and I did that and I, I sported really hard today and I'm going to sport harder tomorrow or whatever. Okay? Or I made this promise and I made that promise and I made this legislation and I did that legislation and I, prom- and I promised to do more legislation next time. But just as a reminder of what we studied before when we see Paul using I, okay? Here's the thing. Paul wants to make the church, sure the church knows he isn't asking them to do something he isn't already doing. That's the point. Okay? As we read in the Bible, it's important to note that this is just Paul's way to graciously call the church to follow his example. You know, Ephesians 4, 9, you know, the things you hear and see to be in me, these things practice. And the God of peace be with you. So listen, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to talk about myself, but it's not because I want to talk about myself. Paul does this so we can see the example of what that's supposed to look like. And so he continues to say, I did this, and I did that, and I'm continuing to walk through these things. But I want you to see and hear these things to be in me, and then do those things. And so Paul's just drawing attention to what needs to be the case. Chapter 1, they were concerned about, you know, a number of different backgrounds they had. You know, Paul comes into this whole study as he's addressing all this. And as he starts in 1 Corinthians 1, he's addressing a very prideful people. He's addressing people who are not unlike modern Christianity. They have a lot of things on their plate, and they're concerned about some things that uh, that they know and they can do and whatever and they bring to the table. And Paul is dealing with pride over and over again. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.12, as he deals with him, he says this, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And, and, he, and he answers and says, listen, I'm nobody. Who's Paul? He's, he's nobody. I'm nobody. And God sent me to preach the gospel. In other words, you know, get your mind off yourself and, and get your mind on the important things. You know, he says, when you're thinking about worldly wisdom that you bring to the church, remember in 1 Corinthians 2.15, you know, they were bringing stuff into meetings and bringing stuff into the, into the church and saying, you know, I've, I've got this from the world and, and this will work here and I, I can do these things and I have these abilities in the world and, and this will work in the church. He said, listen, he who is spiritual appraises all things and yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who's known the mind of the Lord that he'll instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. He says, it doesn't matter what you're bringing to the table from the world. It just matters what you're bringing to the table from the mind of Christ. So he brings them again back away from pridefulness. You know, you don't need the mind of the world operating in fleshliness. You need the mind of Christ. And so he continues in chapter 3 and then chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. Always the same, going back to the same type of theme. Calling them away from arrogance, calling them away from pride. Back to the main thing, their testimony in the community and the preeminence of the gospel. It's always that. And so it's not changed as Paul moves into chapter 9, see. He's going to do it again here. He mentions himself, uh, calls them away from, I can use my freedom to do whatever I want, no chains on me, to what can I give up in my freedom for the sake of the gospel? That's it. So once again, I can do whatever I want. I'm free of Christ. It doesn't matter. If you're, if you're weak and this hurts you, that's your problem. Paul says, no, that's not it. You don't want to cause a roadblock for the gospel. 
You don't want to cause a wounding of a conscience. You don't want to cause a problem of people being derailed temporarily, having a hard time, whatever. See? No, you've got to limit your freedom for the sake of love and do it joyfully. And then he comes here and he says, listen, not only are you going to limit your freedom so you don't make a roadblock for the gospel, you're going to limit, you need to limit your freedom because this is what the gospel's all about. This is where, the, this is where witnessing begins. What can I give up in my freedom for the sake of the gospel. Now let's look at what Paul was not only willing to do, but what he was currently doing for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 20, if you would. <clears throat> to the Jew I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. So, so here's Paul's first, Paul's first example. He's acting on this principle we saw, that he's free to set aside his freedoms for the gospel. He's free of all men and can, by his freedom, make himself servant for all for the gospel. So what does he mean? He says, to the Jew I became a Jew. Well, Paul was a Jew, so what's all that about? Well, you know, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, his ethnic background, Paul's a Jew. He says of himself, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So what does he mean when he says, you know, to the Jew I became a Jew? Well, to Paul, and we've looked at this as we look, work through our background of Paul, he ceased being a Jew by the standard of the modern Jew, okay, when he became redeemed. He ceased in his own mind about being a national Jew when he was redeemed. In, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, we saw this. He, Paul says, listen, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. That's what Paul used to be. He's not a Jew, though, he says, who's one outwardly. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not for men, but of God. So he's kind of defining what that looks like. This is Paul's mindset, see? As a national Jew, no, he ceased to exist as a Jew in that respect. Philippians 3.3, he says, he really explains it further. For we are the true circumcision, Paul says, who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the real Jew, Okay. That's not the national Jew. That's not uh, this ethnic Jew that uh, associates with the law and associates with the things that they can do in order to put themselves in a favorable position uh, for the, in front of the Lord. But Paul says that Paul has a burden for the Jew. Remember in Romans 9, 1, he, he relates to them because they're his brothers. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ, here he says, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So his, his genetic background, Paul says, I'm a Jew. The issue here for Paul is this. He came to faith on the road to Damascus by confessing and believing. He knew that the old life of submitting to the dietary laws and circumcision and feast days held no promise of salvation. He ceased his existence in that arena. He would argue convincingly, and we looked at this a number of weeks ago in Acts 15, that requiring Gentiles to be circumcised and obey the dietary commands was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And he took Peter to task over it, and he lectured everybody about it, and just says, listen, this is not it. Why would we put a big load on the back of people who we, that we weren't even able to bear? That's ridiculous, Paul says. You're free of all those things. So he argues convincingly in Acts 15, listen, you're free of all those dietary laws and all those restrictions. So here's the thing. When it came to making a bridge for the gospel, though, he would conciliate. And that's what it means, to the Jew I became as a Jew. For the gospel, I'm a bond slave to everybody. See, Acts 16.1 is a great example of this. <clears throat> and we read this a number of months ago. I want to read it to you again because I think it's very important. 
here, here we go. Here, here's, the, here's the whole dynamic in play right here, okay? Acts 16.1, he says this. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, verse 2. And he was well spoken of by all the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him, and what did he do? He circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Here's the thing. If someone told Paul, you have to do this to be pleasing to God, Paul would say, no, I don't. I'm free from all men. I don't have to do any of these things to be pleasing to God. I'm free in Christ. But if Paul could see that acting on the freedom he had in Christ to circumcise Timothy in order to pave the way to witness the gospel to the Jews, he has no problems doing that. You see? He's free of circumcision. He's free of the dietary laws. He's free of the requirements of the temple. Okay? Of the sacrificial system and all of that stuff. He understands he's free. But if he understands there's a pave, he can pave the way for the gospel, he's going to do it. See? Now, it doesn't always work out the way Paul wanted it to. I'd like you to turn just quickly, if you would. I know we were almost out of time. Numbers chapter 6. Will you do that? Turn to number 6, because I want you to really get involved in the reading here. There's something that happens when he gets to Jerusalem, and this is kind of blows up in Paul's face. So it doesn't always turn out. Paul submits himself and makes himself a slave uh, to everyone for the gospel's sake. Sometimes it blows up. But um, in Acts 21, and we'll go, we'll go there in a minute, but turn to Numbers chapter 6. Go to the front of your Bible, four books into the right, number 6. Paul submits in Acts 21 to a Nazarite vow. Now, many of you may know the background, some of you may not. But that's a vow of separation and holiness for a time period. Usually eight days, it could be longer, it could be shorter. But it's a time of separation and holiness that the Old Testament talked about. Very, very important, very uh, meaningful time. And Numbers talks about it. Number 6, verse 2, if you'd look there. Speak to the sons of Israel, see where I am, and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, a vow to, of the Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, verse 3, he shall obtain... He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. He shall, uh, nor shall he drink any grape juice or eat, eat flesh or, or dried grapes. Verse 4. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. Verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the, until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to, to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair grow long. Now, stop right there. Just kind of give you a snapshot. In Acts, in Acts 21, okay, Paul's going to come to Jerusalem. We're going to see this in just a minute. Okay? And everyone knows he's been in Gentile lands. Everybody knows that uh, you know, he's been associating with Gentiles. And he would be considered to the unredeemed Jews as unclean because he's associating with Gentiles. And anytime you interacted with Gentiles, you were unclean. Now, Paul knows he's not unclean. Okay? Why? Because he's free of all men and he's free in Christ. And there's no uncleanness because he's associating with the Gentiles. Okay? But some of the redeemed Jews in Jerusalem talk Paul into fulfilling a Nazarite vow when he comes in Acts 21. And, and further, paying for sacrifices of the four other guys who were fulfilling their vows. And this would have perhaps been seen as spiritual and perhaps as humble and, and to the unredeemed Jew uh, who would have heard about it. So Paul does it. Okay, now look back there in, in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verse 13. And let's see what happens here. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 14, he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering. Verse 15, and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and leavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. Now you can kind of see all of that, okay? It's complicated. 
There's a lot of stuff there, and there's going to be there's going to be uh, the way it's offered is prescribed, and how it has to how you have to go about it, and then you have to cut your hair off, and while the stuff's burning on the altar, you take your hair and you put it on the fire, and I'm sure that smelled wonderful, and uh, and so all this stuff is going on, but it's very symbolic, it's super important, and it it it, it sheds a lot of light, okay. Uh, on, among other things, how serious the Lord takes and looks at separation, how serious the Lord looks at dedication, how serious the Lord looks at holiness, and the old, all the symbolic stuff there is super important. It points all towards some very important things for the, for the Lord to communicate to us. Now, Paul knows he's free of all of that, okay? He doesn't have to take a Nazarite vow. He doesn't have to come into the temple, cut off his hair. He doesn't have to present all the sacrifices. Why? Because he's free in Christ, Okay? But he comes into Jerusalem in Acts 21, and some of the Jews are there. They're like, oh, you've been with the Gentiles. There's a whole bunch of Jews here. You know, they're all unredeemed. They're going to think you're unclean. So, hey, here's what you should do, okay? Here's what you should do. Now, turn to Acts 21 real quick, if you would. Acts 21. Here's what you should do. You come in, and you haven't cut your hair. You take the Nazarite vow. You're going to wait the seven days, okay? And you're going to set yourself apart. And then when it's time to shave off the hair, you pay for yours. And you pay for the other four guys. And you take care of all their sacrifices. And you take care of your sacrifice. And the unredeemed Jews will look at that very, very favorably. And perhaps you'll have a bridge to the gospel. So Paul's like, okay. Now, he didn't have to do it, did he? The Lord didn't tell him to do it. He, he doesn't have to submit himself to these things. He doesn't have to go back to the old way. He doesn't have to shave off his hair. He doesn't have to do any of these things. But Paul's going to do it, okay? Look at verse 17 of Acts 21. And I'll just do this quickly, all right? We're just about at the end, I promise. <clears throat> Acts 21, verse 17. Paul says this, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Verse 18. And the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So he's in the redeemed church there in Jerusalem. Verse 19. And he had greeted them and began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Look at verse 20. And when they heard of it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. Now, that's, that's probably not a good thing, okay? But this is an immature church, okay? They haven't grown. Uh, they have a problem with a bunch of stuff. They're legalistic. Uh, it was a problem in the church then. It's a problem in the church now, verse 21. And they have been told about you uh, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you have come. In other words, this is going to blow up. I mean, people have heard about you. There's going to be trouble. So they have this wonderful idea. Look at verse 23. Here, this will solve everything. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. This is a Nazarite vow we just looked at. Take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and, we, and all will know that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. See the fix Paul's in? The church in Jerusalem's growing. But it's immature. Paul could have said, hey, you can forget it. Okay, you guys are a bunch of legalists. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to conform. I'm right. You're wrong. That's it. Is that what Paul says? No, that's not what he says. Look at verse 26. Paul then took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until the sacrifice was offered for each of them. So he waits the right number of days. He does what he's supposed to do. Okay, verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, verse 28, Men of Israel, come to our aid. Now these are the people Paul wants to witness to, all right? So this is not going well, all right? Paul submits himself. He doesn't care. Why? He's a bondservant to everyone. He's a bondservant to the unredeemed. He'll give up his rights 
if it helps the gospel go forward. He'll give up its rights if it won't derail someone who's new in the faith. It doesn't matter for Paul, see? Because he's not his own. He doesn't care. But this is going to blow up, okay? Men of Israel, come to our aid. This, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verse 30, then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, so this has gone from bad to worse, fast, okay? A report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort, and all Jerusalem was in confusion. Verse 32, and once he took some soldiers and centurions and ran down, to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, let's just stop right there. I think you've got the essence of the story, okay? Paul sets aside his right. Look back at 1 Corinthians 9.20. Paul sets aside his rights. He sets aside his freedom, both for the immature church, so that he doesn't offend anybody, okay? He is free of all those things. He could have said, you're wrong, you're legalist, you haven't grown, grow up. He didn't say any of that, okay? I can do what I want. I'm free in Christ. I'm not, I don't have to submit myself to you, but that's not what he says, see? He says, okay, I'll do this. And he does it for the sake of the gospel because of the unredeemed Jews who are there. He's going to look, you know, he's going to do the things he needs to do. They're going to see that and say, okay, you know, maybe Paul has something to say. But Paul says this, he becomes a Jew outwardly. 1 Corinthians 9, 20, to the Jew I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. If we could help the believing Jew and keep them from stumbling over his freedom, keep from wounding their conscience, keep from them from ruin, he'd give up his freedom. He would become, he says, I became, and genomen, heiress active middle, simply, this is the freedom I contributed. I became. And the middle voice just means the subject initiated the action. This is something Paul says, I brought to the table. And in the same way as Paul ministered to the Corinthians without charge, in other words, it wasn't God, God's law that commanded me to do this to you without charge, okay? I, I, it wasn't been telling me I had to do this. Paul contributed it the same way. When the opportunity arose, he took it. Same here. And in the aorist tense with this indica indicative just means that it, it actually happened. See? It actually happened. Aorist middle indicative. This is something that, that happened. How do we know it happened? We just read it in Acts 21. I did this, Paul says. I became a Jew. I submitted myself to it, and it blew up in my face, and it doesn't matter. So the emphasis here is if he could, by giving up his freedom from the ceremonies, pave the way for the gospel, would Paul do it? Yeah, even to his own detriment? Absolutely. First 18 verses of 1 Corinthians 9, he gave up pay to his own detriment, without food, without clothing, even to this present time, he said, but it doesn't matter. I even took money from other churches to help me minister to you because you were having a problem with it. So I'll just give it up. I don't care. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Right? And it's a whole different mindset, I think, as we think about our own selves, as we interact with our culture. I just, I love this about Paul. Listen, this is not a big deal. I've already made up my mind. I'm, I'm going to be a slave to everyone who doesn't, is not redeemed. I'm okay with it. I'll give up whatever I have to give up. So it matters what the world thinks about what you do, beloved, and what you allow in your life. And there's never a guarantee, of course, when you do it, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a bridge for the gospel. It blew up in his face there. It dragged him out of there to try to beat him to death. And Paul didn't care. If he had a choice to pave the way for the gospel by giving up your freedom, sure he would do it. And you know what? Galatians 4, or 6, 14 through 17. This is Paul. May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter what I can do. 
through which the world through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Can you say that? Has the world been crucified to you and you to the world? For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In other words, those who are Jewish by heritage, who come to this understanding, the Lord will bring peace to them. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Listen, you're not going to change my mind, okay? Well, Paul, that could be a dangerous thing to do, to make yourself like a Jew. It could be a dangerous thing to do to give up your freedom. Yeah, I know, Paul says. Been there. Got the marks. Let's finish up with the last part of 1 Corinthians 9.20. To the Jew I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law. At those under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now, the reason why I'm just putting this in there is because he's talking about the same group, okay? He's not changed groups. And I became as implied. It's just Paul clarifying the difference between Israel of God and natural Israel, okay? Natural Israel is under the law. This would be the sacrificial law, ceremonial law, dietary law. Mor- you know, moral law is not excluded here, okay? I've heard I've people tell me this, you know, I'm, I'm not under the law, okay? I mean... Everybody's under the moral law of God, okay? You're not, you don't escape that because you're free in Christ. And we'll look more carefully at that next time. That's why Paul says in the next verse, verse 21, he says, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Well, this clarifies it. The moral law still stands. I'm not going to be immoral in order to bridge for the gospel, but I will make myself whatever I need to make myself and put up with whatever I need to put up with and give up whatever it is I need to give up because... I've made myself a bond slave to the unredeemed. And so as we close, we can pull our next principle out of that. It has to do with our freedom. You can see it right there. Paul went as far as he could go without untruthfulness to connect with the unredeemed and give them the gospel. As far as he can go. And we can do that as well. And just a couple of qualifiers as we close up. We're not to be dishonest. We don't minimize distinctives. The gospel is the gospel. You know, our freedom isn't in order that we have the best of both worlds. You know, in other words, we're not doing what we're doing to use our freedom as a cloak for fleshliness. We saw that warning several times. In general, here's it, here it is. Okay, as you think about becoming what you need to become with the unredeemed. Okay, you should never be participating in things with a non-believer that they would have to turn away from when they come to faith. And I think that can kind of qualify how you make yourself a servant in the unredeemed. And we'll get more into this because we're out of time. And I want to talk about this more, but we, don't, we can't do it today. But the bottom line is this. As you make, become all things to all people, as you bridge the gap to the unredeemed and you give up your, your freedom to do whatever it takes, you never want to do anything with the unredeemed that they're going to have to turn away from when they come to faith, okay? So you have to be careful about where you, where you bridge that gap. At some point, you have to say, okay, I can't do that. But the bottom line is our motivation to do this his love for the lost and a keenness to bring them to the truth. And I think that if we can say along with Paul about the lost, and I just want to come back to this and we'll close with this because I want to end with this in our minds, okay? As Paul says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies in me. So everything about my life, Paul says, everything about what I think, everything about my conscience, everything that my thought process, whatever. The Holy Spirit testifies with this, that I have great sorrow and ceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my, my brethren, my kinsman according to the flesh. If we come in there with that idea, if we come in there with a burden for the lost that way, and we understand that as a basic discipleship, it is, you're giving up your rights 
to make a, uh, a path to the unredeemed. Then we're right where God would have us. See, As we, If we have a burden for the lost to, to the point where we could say, uh, hypothetically, I would even give up my own salvation to see them come to faith, to make sure they weren't cast away. Then we're right where God would have us. See, And that's where I want us to leave off today because we'll pick up next week with this and kind of fill in a lot of, a lot of these gaps. At that point, we can exercise our freedom to restrict our freedom and actually be used by God to help the unredeemed see grace and see Jesus, and that's what we want to do, okay? All right, let's bow in prayer, and I'm sorry we're over time a little bit. Let's, uh, let's seek the Lord here as these things are fresh in our mind. Lord, we thank you today for uh, a wonderful opportunity to be together, for uh, an opportunity to do what you would have us to do when the church has been coming together all along to, to sing and to read uh, the words that were written for us. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that we've done these things, that we've given faithfully, that we've prayed and submitted ourselves to you. We've recognized you're the giver of all things. We have been able to sing and encourage one another and, and, and in the opening times and the closing times to, to bond together in the love of Christ. We're so grateful for that dynamic here, for the life that is here at Berean, for all that goes on downstairs with all our little ones and, and the fullness of those rooms. We just thank you for that. We're grateful. And Father, as we think about this lesson today, particularly to make our mind up in advance, already determined that we will give up our freedom. We will make ourselves a bond slave to the unredeemed, and we might win them. Lord, I pray that you'll work that out in our life as you would see fit, see uh, that application in our life. There's many, Father, in, in a group this size, many applications, no doubt, that can go into play this week, and I pray that your will be done there. And whatever we can do to bridge the gap to the unredeemed, Father, without being untruthful, without participating in things that we'd have to, they'd have to turn away from when they come to faith, Lord, help us to do that we can become all things to all people, that by all means, some might be saved. We pray this to the depths of our heart. We desire this more than anything. And that is really how the church has always grown. It's always been dynamic in that respect. And people have understood this is what it takes. I pray we'll be that kind of church. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.